Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Kriti Sharma, Antoine Fougere Ramsamuj, and Ragini Singh Pawar. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In September this year, the British government, with its surprise money budget, incited a series of events that led to turbulence in the markets, which bled into the political arena, resulting in new leadership. This week's episode cuts through the drama to break down the economic policy, understand what really went wrong, and explore the ramifications of the UK's political and economic crisis for a Canadian perspective. Our first guest today is longtime economist and academic Professor Edmund Cannon from the University of Bristol. Professor Cannon is a fellow of the Pensions Institute and a visiting professor at the University of Verona. He is an associate and long-standing member of the Economics Network, a body to help improve economics teaching in the UK's higher education sector. His research interests lie broadly in the area of applied economics especially in long-run economic development, the efficiency of markets, pensions and insurance. Here is Professor Cannon in conversation with Kriti Sharma. Professor Cannon, thank you for accepting our invitation and joining us today for this discussion. Thank you for having me. The last month was exceptionally eventful for the British economy. The financial markets nearly crashed, value of the government bonds collapsed, the sterling fell, the Bank of England was forced to intervene and there was a shift in the leadership. At the centre of all this was Prime Minister Liz Truss's mini-budget, Professor Cannon. To begin with, could you walk our listeners through the main proposals of the budget? Okay, so I think there are there are three things in the budget that, that needs we need to concentrate on, which are very important. So the first thing is that because of high energy prices, uh, and we're talking about energy that people are using to heat their homes as we go into winter, uh, the government felt it needed to have a package of um, subsidising energy costs for households. And this is going to be very expensive, and it's not quite clear how expensive it's going to be. But the government announced that uh, in the budget, and this was clearly uh, a commitment to spend a lot of money. At the same time, they also uh, decided to announce significant tax cuts or um, something which is more or less the same previously announced tax rises that were due to go ahead were cancelled. So they effectively announced they were going to raise a lot less money through tax. So there's a lot more government spending, a lot less tax. And then the third thing, which is really important, they declined to call this a budget. And one of the reasons they did that is that in the UK, there is a semi-independent agency called the Office for Budget Responsibility. And as the name suggests, uh, these are people who are given access to the all of the relevant numbers and they check, is this a responsible budget or is it the case that the sums don't add up and the government's not going to be able to raise enough money uh, to pay for what it's doing? And the Office for Budget Responsibility, or the OBR, was not allowed to comment on the budget. And since the whole point, of course, of the OBR is to give credibility to the government, when you say, as a government, we're not going to let the OBR review the budget, it's almost tantamount to saying, um, we don't want people to know how bad the budget is because the sums don't add up. 
the budget is bad. We know that because, uh, Professor, you are an economist, but to regular people who are not economists like you, the budget proposal does not necessarily ring a bell. In fact, a low tax, high wage, high growth economy does sound like a good idea. Was the policy backed by some reason and not just ideological fervor, Professor Cannon? Could you discuss what was the economics behind the policy, just so that the listeners could also understand the government's rationale behind this budget? Well, I mean, the phrase you've used, you know, low tax, high wage, high growth. So, so it all sounds very good. But remember, the, the budget uh, was not low tax, high wage, high growth. A, a budget is an announcement about government spending and taxation decisions. So clearly it was an announcement about low tax. And if the government wants to reduce tax, it can reduce tax automatically just by changing the tax rate. Uh, the government cannot, just by making a budget announcement, change wages or change growth. So you now have to ask yourself, um, where are the higher wages and the higher growth going to come from? So, I mean, this certainly in an Anglo-Saxon or perhaps North American context, this might be shocking to many people, but there is absolutely no link between lower taxes and higher wages or between lower taxes and a more successful economy or between lower taxes and higher growth. So some of the economies in the world um, which are most successful, uh, so think of Scandinavian countries like Sweden or Denmark, or countries like Germany or France uh, have higher taxes than the United States of America and the United Kingdom. And yet in many, you know, on many measures, they're more successful economies. They have higher wages. Uh, so, you know, just cutting taxes is not going to, to lead to higher wages. And even if it does lead to higher wages, the higher wages, you know, the wages are likely to rise at some point in the future. But the taxes are going to come down today. So there is still a problem that in the in the interval between taxes falling and wages going up, you're still going to ask yourself, where is the government going to get its money from? You know, uh, and that that, of course, was one of the issues that that was not addressed, uh, not addressed by Quarting and Truss in the budget. Talking about issues, Professor Cannon, could you elaborate more on where did the calculations go absolutely wrong? I mean, it is apparently an investor-friendly policy, but it led to a freefall in the in the market, in the economy. So there are two issues which I think uh, I'd like just to, to be clear about. So the right. first thing is, and I, I don't know, you know, an audience of people who understand economics, we can discuss the sort of basic thing about do the sums add up? Right. And what is the effect of, of what is the effect of, of this budget on you know the British economy? Mm -hmm. There is also a very, very peculiar issue which arose after this budget due to strange features of the United Kingdom pension system. So let me start by ignoring the United Kingdom pension system because that's going to get obscure and technical. So, so let's start with the general issue about how the budget might affect the um, how the budget might affect the economy. So the idea here is that this is investor friendly, but that's a little bit of assertion because we're cutting taxes. And obviously, everybody would like to pay lower taxes, but they'd like to pay lower taxes if everything else stays the same. You don't necessarily want to pay lower taxes if it means that the quality of education goes down, if the government doesn't spend money on infrastructure such as roads or railways or fast broadband or things which raise productivity. You don't want lower taxes if it means that 
there is going to be a lack of healthcare provision because then you worry more about, well, what happens if I'm ill and um, there isn't a doctor to see me? I now need to start investing less and saving more money for, you know, a potential emergency. So, you know, you've got to think these lower taxes, they sound fine, but what are the consequences of lower taxes? And, and they may actually reduce productivity. Uh, and if you reduce productivity, you're going to deter uh, you're going to deter investment because investors investors want to commit to an investment if they see that the economy is going to be productive and they can they can buy into that productivity. So I think that that the lower tax thing could be investor friendly, but it might be investor unfriendly if it's perceived that it's going to lead to lack of government investment in areas such as education, infrastructure, health. Um, I know, and these are areas where the private sector, you know, frequently does not have a good record of providing for the, the economy. So that that I think is why it may not have been as investor friendly as as it might appear on, you know, might have been asserted. And of course, there are lots of other investor friend, unfriendly things going on at the same time. You know, in particular, um, you know, Brexit is um, an investor unfriendly thing. Because especially for small and medium sized firms, but for the British economy as a whole, our major export market is the European Union. There's no secret why the European Union is our major export market. It's because it's right next door. And most countries trade with countries which are next door. So we have made it harder for British uh, firms uh, to trade. And that means that they're less willing to invest because, you know, they're really not sure how they're going to sell their goods to France or Germany or Sweden um, if, um, you know, if there is more bureaucracy involved uh, in sending goods from Britain to the European Union. You know, that's that I think is a sort of the, the most important thing about what was driving this. The British economy was already reeling under economic pressures. The Brexit debacle, there was a fall in productivity due to the pandemic. The mini budget sort of pushed the economy over the edge, Professor Cannon. I think that's that's fair. The British economy was fragile. Uh, and in fact, the, the British economy has had a disappointing economic performance, not just since Brexit, but since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. You know, we we um, you know we've had ten to twelve years of very disappointing performance. So this is not an economy which is strong, and you know something bad happens and then the economy bounces back. This is an economy which is already struggling, and uh, in fact Brexit got steadily worse over time. So when the Brexit referendum campaign was being discussed, um, if you listen carefully to what the Brexit uh, people were saying, people like Nigel Farage or uh, Boris Johnson, you know, at that point, they were saying we shall leave the European Union, but sh we shall remain within the single market in the customs union. And then after the, um, you know, after the referendum, Theresa May becomes prime minister. And um, she talks about leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. Um, but she tries to retain some of those, uh, some of the benefits of both of those because of the problems involving the border, but the land border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the European Union. But then when Theresa May ceases to be prime minister, we then have an even harder Brexit where we leave both the single market and the customs union. 
Uh, that creates all sorts of problems for Northern Ireland, which, which you know, are, are political as well as economic. But the, yeah. you know, the Brexit has steadily got worse as we've moved from one version of Brexit in 2016 to a totally different sort of Brexit uh, in 2022. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. My name is Kriti Sharma and we are joined by Professor Edmund Gannon to discuss the UK's mini-budget. CIUT is a non-profit community radio station and this week we are kicking off the fall fundraising drive. Anything you can give helps Beyond the Headlines and all other CIUT shows to continue delivering the programming you love. Visit beyondtheheadlines.net forward slash donate. And now for our curious listeners, Professor Cannon, could you tell us more about the pension funds that you mentioned earlier? So, so this is this is quite um, obscure, and uh, but it does show the extent to which financial markets can be quite unstable and can actually make things worse. So in Britain, there is a large occupational pension sector where uh, people who work for a company um, pay money into a pension fund. And that company is, uh, that pension fund is looked after by the employer. And then when the, when the uh, worker or the individual retires, they receive an income in their old age. And the key thing is that the firm, the employer, is has a degree of responsibility for ensuring that there is enough money in the pension fund so that the promise of a pension can be uh, can be delivered. Uh, and of course, if you know, if you're 45 years old, for example, and you're going to retire at 65, uh, you don't start to receive your pension for 20 years. And of course, if, uh, you know, given life expectancy, it's quite likely you will be alive when you're 85. So we're talking about 40, 50 years into the future. And we want to be certain that 40, 50 years into the future, there's enough money because we don't want the pension fund. You know, I I don't want to get to age 85 and suddenly find that my pension stops because, you know, the pensions run out because at age 85, it's going to be difficult to go back and get a job to, to raise more money. I mean, I may be incapable of working. So that's the... That's the context of how a pension uh, works here. And so pensions are regulated. Now, you've got to decide, you know, the pension uh, and hence the company, the employer, has this liability to pay a pension a long time in the future. And we know that payments in the future have to be discounted by an appropriate interest rate. You know, a pound 40 years from now is not the same as a pound today. It's got to be discounted by the interest rate appropriate for a 40-year horizon. And as interest rates vary, that means the value of the liabilities goes up and down. If interest rates uh, go down, then those liabilities become larger because they're discounted less. And therefore, pension funds had purchased um, complicated financial derivatives. These were, in fact, a, a form of... Uh, they're a form of hedge purchased through swaps. And um, to maintain these financial uh, contracts, they had to post collateral. And they were primarily worried that interest rates would continue to go down, and therefore they'd insure themselves against interest rates going down. What then happened was that interest rates uh, went up after the budget because the government effectively said it was going to borrow more money. The government's going to borrow more money. It has to pay a higher interest rate to get people to lend to it. And therefore, uh, these financial derivatives uh, started um, to move in the wrong direction. And it became the case that pension funds 
had to post uh, more collateral um, to um, uh, you know, reassure the counterparties that they would maintain their part of the financial contract. Now, the collateral that, they'd, uh, that they were using for this was, was government bonds. So as government bond prices fell, um, they didn't have enough collateral, so they had to raise more cash. So they then sold more government bonds to try and raise cash. But of course, the more government bonds they sold, the more government bond prices tended to fall. But then when government bond prices fell, they needed to post more collateral, so they were selling more bonds. So we got this strange feedback loop um, and the, the sales of pension funds on a daily basis um, of government bonds were something like four to five times the, the typical turnover for a day. So we suddenly get very, very large sales of government bonds beyond what anybody could have conceived of. And, uh, you know, we, we got into this situation because there weren't enough buyers easily available. The more they sold, the worse it was. And that's where the Bank of England stepped in to become the purchaser of government bonds of last resort, effectively, to, to prevent a meltdown in the market. You know, to, to be fair, when the government, uh, when the Bank of England announced that it would do this, the very knowledge that there was somebody that was going to buy um, reassured investors so much that the prices stopped falling. And in fact, the Bank of England did not have to purchase huge quantities of government bonds after all. The mere announcement that it would step in uh, calmed investors because they were confident they'd find buyers eventually for these bonds. It's just they couldn't find them all on the same day. Um, and therefore, the, the Bank of England did did a good job in uh, preventing that peculiarity of the pension system, creating a more systemic problem. But but this is very, very obscure, it has to be said. Uh, it's worth pointing out, you know, very obscure things that most economists do not understand can suddenly in strange situations lead to things and that that shows why it is important for regulators like the, Gov uh, the Bank of England you know to keep an eye on these strange financial products. Professor Cannon on the point of the importance of independent bodies like the Bank of England you mentioned earlier about how the government bypassed the Office of Budget Responsibility or the OBR. Now, bypassing the OBR looks like the second biggest mistake that former Prime Minister Liz Truss made. Do you think these risks, especially uh, how the pension funds feedback loop sort of operated, could have been prevented and predicted by the OBR had they reviewed uh, the mini-budget? I think if the Office for Budget Responsibility had asked to be involved, it would have probably have said that, you know, it... It would have said that government borrowing was going to have to go up ever such a lot, and that would have led to a big increase in interest rates. In, in some sense, everybody worked out exactly what the Office for Budget Responsibility would have said from the mere fact that it wasn't allowed to say it. Yeah, Because because if the, if the Office for Budget Responsibility would have said, oh, this is fine, it won't be a problem, then of course the government would have uh, been desperate for the Office for Budget Responsibility to say it. Yes. So there was a sense in which... The failure of the Office for Budget Responsibility to comment, it, it was still revealed ever such a lot of information, perhaps not as in as much detail or quite as precisely as if, if it had had access to the numbers to do so. Uh, as for the issue of the pension funds, I think that is a moot point. I don't think the Office for Budget Responsibility would have thought about this uh, as being an issue because it's a purely financial one. It's not an economic one. Right. And arguably... You know, arguably, this this was an area of regulation which 
you know, it was one of those things, who, it wasn't clear who was responsible. Should it have been the pension regulator? There is a pension regulator. Should it have been the, the, the prudential regulatory authority? Should it have been the Bank of England? You know, these things tend to go wrong when there are three or four regulators and there's an issue which sort of falls between the cracks. So the, the pension fund issue might have been a problem even if the Office for Budget Responsibility had been involved. That is interesting to note, uh, Professor. Talking about uh, sustainable public finances, there was clearly a fundamental macroeconomic conflict between the policy package that uh, that the mini budget promised and the Bank of England's need to need to control inflation. Could you throw some light on why is it important that fiscal policy does not go in the opposite direction of the monetary policy, especially in times of a slowing economic environment like this one? In an ideal world, monetary and fiscal policy would would at least complement each other right. in ensuring that you know there wasn't too much spending and demand in the economy. If we if we encourage people to spend more money, and there are unemployed resources, then that's a good thing because it may encourage those resources to come into employment. But although you know it's not clear that there are huge huge unemployed resources in the United Kingdom economy at the moment. Uh, it's true that GDP is not growing, but but that's because not not because we're not using resources. It's because the resources are less productive, you know, for a variety of reasons, of which Brexit is only is only one. There are other problems going on. Productivity is not growing. Um, so of course, if all resources are used and you 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 encourage more spending, then you can't produce more stuff, and therefore it will tend to to increase inflation. Um, so really. There does need to be some informal coordination between the Bank of England and and the government uh, to ensure that uh, to ensure that inflation uh, does not become too much of a problem. It, it's really an issue for the government to communicate clearly to the Bank of England what, what the government wants to do so that the Bank of England can can then decide how to respond. We talked about change, a shift in leadership to, after the mini budget. Looking at the road ahead, Professor Cannon, the new British Prime Minister faces a profound economic challenge. What is what is the one advice that you could give him to, to take on this challenge? I think the current Prime Minister uh, benefits from a, a phenomenon which is, um, is, uh, is, is usually described in psychology rather than economics, a phenomenon called anchoring. That you you decide how some how good something is com- compared with some pre-existing benchmark, mm-hmm. and and of course, Rishi Sunak does look very good if you compare him to Elizabeth Truss. The, the problem is that you know, Elizabeth Truss's policies were so strange and so bizarre that that almost anybody would look good <laughs> in in comparison. I mean, I I think years from now, you know, s- students of politics. Um, both in Britain and Canada, uh, you know, who, uh, Canadian students who are discussing British politics will be given Elizabeth Truss's, you know, what exactly did she think she was doing? Yeah, I, I think there are significant doubts about Sunak's competence and his, his, you know, his particular ambitions and objectives. And therefore, it's difficult from, I have to say, I think it's difficult for me to give give a single piece of advice to, to Sunak or any advice. Because I think, you know, Sunak really is the culmination of 12 years of, of largely failed, you know, policy. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've said that the productivity growth has been very disappointing since 
the global financial crisis. For the, all of that period, the Conservatives, uh, nearly all of that period, the Conservatives have been in power. I, I think that the sort of advice one would be having to give to Sunak would be advice he wouldn't want to hear, which is basically that the the neoliberal view that markets work and we just need to cut taxes and things will be fine just needs to be not revised but torn up and you know, we, we need to do something totally different. I don't think he would like to hear that. But I think he should pay heed to uh, to this advice. If he's listening, then it, it can do more good than bad. Professor Cannon, you were talking about lessons that this episode could give to uh, future policy students uh, in Canada and uh, and UK and the rest of the world. Uh, but could we extrapolate policy lessons uh, for now for the rest of the world? Because the UK crisis is somewhat symbolic of uh, the wider set of economic problems that uh, the entire world, at least major part of the world, is facing today with slower productivity growth. The energy prices are rising. Uh, there's inflation. What lessons uh, can the world learn from this episode of policy crisis in, in the UK? I think one lesson already has been learned by a group of politicians within the European Union. Uh, I mean, all democratically elected politicians struggle to deliver everything that the voters want. And therefore, there is always a temptation for democratically elected politicians to blame, to try to find somebody else to blame. And within the European Union, politicians of various parties and various countries, uh, when faced with the fact that their country was performing badly, blamed it on the European Union because the European Union couldn't answer back. Uh, and I've even spoken to politicians who've admitted, you know, you know, when I was when I was faced with a, an angry voter who was being, you know, shouting at me, um, it was tempting to blame it on the European Union because it was a quick way of, you know, getting out of trouble. The interesting thing is that that politicians in the European Union, even quite right wing politicians, um, who have used, you know, been quite critical of the European Union uh, since Brexit, they've stopped it. But they've realised that this the the danger is that it leads to an even worse outcome. And I think European politicians have learned that. I think that politicians in the United Kingdom, sadly, have not learned that. It is still, even now we've left the European Union, you know, everything is because the European Union was nasty to us over Brexit or because Brexit wasn't done properly. You know, And they're failing to, to, to address the issue. You know, Britain has problems that, you know, we had these problems when we were in the European Union and we still have these problems when we're outside the European Union. And we can't blame the European Union. We need to think outside the box. We need to do things very, very differently. And we have to realise that, you know, we've systemically all contributed to mistakes over the last 10 to 20 years. And I think some people are realising that. I, I, I would link that to what I consider a more important crisis than the crises you raise about temporary high energy prices due to the Ukrainian conflict. In, in the the fairly near future, we need massively to reduce our reliance upon energy and totally reduce our um, reliance on fossil fuels, which are bad for the environment. And if you're outside the continent of North America, you know, these fossil fuels are largely provided uh, by dictators, some of whom are military dictators. They're certainly some of the most unpleasant political leaders in the world, I'm thinking of Russia, I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia. 
you know, and you know, there are options here to go down a green revolution. Whether it will be quite as as um, uh, you know a good thing for us as as the most enthusiastic environmentalists say, I don't know. But you know, we've we've got to start changing things very dramatically. And I think some politicians realise that. Whether the politicians meeting at COP twenty seven in Egypt now really buy up to that is you know remains to be seen. But you know you can't you can't keep blaming somebody else. You've got to take responsibility. I think, and we all individually have to take responsibility for for the environment. Once again, that was Professor Edmund Cannon, who joined us for a discussion on the UK's mini budget and its fiscal fallout. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines. Before we continue, our host radio station CIUT eighty nine point five FM which is housed within the University of Toronto campus and is Canada's largest community radio station, is hosting its fall fundraising drive. Beyond the Headlines is incredibly lucky for the opportunity to air on CIUT every Monday, but we need your support to continue providing you with policy-oriented content. Any donation you can give will go towards supporting high-quality community radio. You can donate online anytime at beyondtheheadlines.net slash donate. Our next guest is Professor Mel Kapp from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Before joining Monk, Professor Kapp was the President and CEO of the Institute for Research and Public Policy. He has also had a distinguished career in the Canadian public service and has served in many high-profile positions, such as Canada's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, as well as Clerk of the Privy Council and Secretary to the Federal Cabinet. Here is Antoine Fougere-Ramsimouj in conversation with Professor Kapp. Hello, Professor Kapp. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. A good place to begin would be to offer our listeners an overview of UK-Canada relations over the last few years. Um, how important is Canada's relationship with the UK and how deep does that relationship go? Uh, well, thanks, Antoine, and a uh, pleasure to be here. I, I think it's really important to understand that there's a there's a deep history in our relationship. Um, uh, one of the, uh, the UK is one of our pays mer, uh, mother countries that uh, helped create Canada. Um, uh, you can recognize indigenous uh, contributions and French contributions and contributions from all around the globe. But at the end of the day, the UK was in some ways uh, one of the most uh, significant. Um, and the relationship is very deep in terms of UK investment in Canada. And so the trade relationship is fundamentally important. The migration experience is fundamentally important. The relationship that Canada has with the UK because of the Commonwealth is very important. And therefore, our relationship with other Commonwealth countries, the other 53 or 56 that it is now, um, um, leads to uh, a relationship with expatriates living in Canada. That's very important as well. In terms of the history of this relationship I, and the importance of it to Canada, I could uh, talk about uh, going back to Boris Johnson as uh, prime minister, or I could do it more appropriately and take us back to the Magna Carta. Uh, and so the, uh, you know, 1215, and I don't mean the time, I mean the year, uh, that was when uh, the um, knights and uh, lords began to uh, constrain the crown. And therefore, our parliamentary democracy derives directly from that constraint on the crown and the exercise by the crown of legal responsibility. So the relationship is deep. 
It's deep from a people, a money, and an institutional perspective. And it's evolved. Uh, we'll come back to this because uh, I think it's in a way less important now than it was um, 17 years ago when I was high commissioner. And it's, um, uh, I think, going to become less important uh, for a number of reasons, uh, which we can discuss. Well, that brings us nicely to my next question with regards to one might kind of say, maybe in a post-Brexit world, how has this relationship evolved and in what kind of tangible ways has it become less important? Well, it's become certainly less important in terms of the uh, source country of immigration. Uh, And that's been a natural evolution over time. And certainly since the 70s or 80s, um, the UK became, and and for that matter, Western Europe, became a less important source country for immigration. And that is really important for the development of a Canadian identity uh, and the notion of migrants uh, bringing something to Canada and changing Canada in the process. And so that's been very important. You mentioned Brexit, uh, and that uh, has been fundamental. And and we should be very careful to recognize that uh, the UK um, was sort of in the middle of the pack when it joined the EU, uh, and then uh, the first to leave. And 2016 was uh, the referendum But the issue as a political issue in the UK had been there since the time of Margaret Thatcher and before. Uh, And so when uh, the the UK joined the EU, uh, this was a dramatic and emotional moment uh, because the Brits, there was this line that they used to use in the UK that if there was fog in the channel, the continent was cut off. It wasn't that the island was cut off from the continent. It was the continent who was drifting away. Uh, and the, the the notion of England, not just the United Kingdom, but England as the center of the universe is part of the essence of identity for the English. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, including Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, is a different entity. Uh, and then Brexit comes along and they withdraw from their largest trading partner. Who ever heard of such a thing? Uh, and as there was an integration taking place in the economy and polity of uh, Britain, and remember, Britain was one of the leaders, political leaders in the European Union. Mm-hmm. And then it decides to withdraw. This was a longing for empire. Uh, you know, could we go back to being the imperial power? Right. Uh, and it was a ridiculous negative reaction to mm-hmm. the regulatory uh, initiatives that were coming out of uh, out of Brussels. Well, well, just to build on that, you made the distinction between England and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. If I remember correctly, in 2016, Northern Ireland, Scotland, uh, Wales, and Gibraltar individually all voted to remain. And the only country within the country of the UK that voted to leave was actually England itself. You're quite right. I would add one little caveat to that, and that was that London voted to remain as well. Right. So even within England, 
But the dominance of the nature of that referendum led to the predominance of uh, votes, and it was close, that went for uh, withdrawal, uh, leave. Uh, but you're quite right, Scotland in particular and London um, were sort of very split, uh, but but dominantly remain. And um, that has huge consequences for the future of the United Kingdom. Uh, both words are important, and in this past month, uh, the challenge of being united has been put at risk, and the challenge of being a kingdom is being put at risk with the passing of the Queen. So uh, the UK is the political entity, but it is at risk. So so to summarize a, a little bit, UK-Canada relations have a, an incredibly long uh, history together, um, but we have seen that decline, particularly on the British side, on you know the international scale, the global scale with regards to their influence. And one of the accelerants for this decline would have been Brexit a few years ago. Quite so. Um, the one thing we did that was very clever for Britain was uh, that we, or for the UK, was that we uh, we rolled over all of the trading arrangements we had with Europe after we had signed CETA, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement with the EU, and we rolled over all of those arrangements to continue with the United Kingdom, even though the United Kingdom was outside of Europe. But if you think about this from a Canadian investor's position, right. would you rather invest in a 300 million person market or mm -hmm. a 60 million person market? And the answer is pretty obvious. And if in the old days you could invest in that 60 million person market to access a 360 million person market, mm -hmm. then you would do it because of language, legal right. uh, commonality, et cetera, et cetera. So before it was the continent being cut off from the island, and now it very much is the island being cut off from the continent. I think that brings us nicely to this episode's theme, you know, the current political and economic crisis that is still plaguing the United Kingdom. How did we get here? Um, and what are kind of the major consequences on the global scale, but also on the national scale for this political instability that the UK is, is seeing? Yeah, uh, important question because it has significant consequences for Canada. Um, the first is the evolution of the Conservative Party. The way parties choose their leaders matter. So if you think about this, about 14 million people voted for Boris Johnson to be prime minister. And about 140,000 people voted for Liz Truss to be prime minister. And 195 people voted for Rishi Sunak to be prime minister. And so the institutional arrangements of the Conservative Party are partly determinant here. We, I think, unfortunately, and I've got a lot of time for Michael Chong, he's an excellent MP, but his private member's bill called the Reform Act uh, has allowed for parliamentary caucus and party to play a larger role than it has in the past. And I think the UK is paying a price for this. So that's one element of some significance. The other is colonialism itself. The last, uh, up until Jeremy Hunt, the previous four chancellors had been named Sajid, Nadim, Rishi, and Kwasi. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that those are not you know uh, white uh, Anglo-Saxon names, and all four of them were people of color, and so the UK is becoming uh, a more egalitarian society. However, it is still a very hierarchical society. It is stratified by class. Each of the four brown or black people I mentioned were of the, you know, they'd all gone to private schools, they'd all gone Mm -hmm. to Oxford or Cambridge, Mm -hmm. and they were all part of the elite in Britain. And that is still very much what Britain, what the United Kingdom is, an elitist country, hierarchical and stratified. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, And then I think you've got to look at Brexit as the signal of dissatisfaction uh, and I think there are interesting uh, elements of this because we have dissatisfaction in Canada as well. Mm. COVID was a a very important factor. Mm. And Rishi Sunak had done a very good job as Chancellor of the Exchequer of introducing a furlough policy, which was very clever. But COVID and the disaffection, and we're living it now in Ontario with the the teacher's assistance strike, Mm -hmm. um, all of that has had an effect, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. The other thing is that the economy as a result of Brexit has just gone into the tank. If you look at automobile production in the United Kingdom, it has gone to a third of what it was in 2016. And 2016 was up at a very high level, Mm -hmm. and then it started to decline, and it just fell off the chart. And that that means that the manufacturing in the UK is is down. It mm. means that the service industries, with London as the center of the financial uh, center of Europe, um, London is in decline and as a financial center. Just a quick reminder that CIUT FM is currently undergoing its fall fundraising drive. Visit beyondtheheadlines.net/slash/donate and please give generously. We are a non-profit community radio station, and your contribution is needed to enable Beyond the Headlines and all other programs on CIUT to continue delivering high-quality programs. For those just tuning in, I am Antoine Fougere Ramsamouj, in conversation with Professor Mel Kapp, former High Commissioner for Canada in the United Kingdom, who is here to discuss the national and global implications of the UK's political and economic crisis for Canada. I find it interesting that you know, when I asked the question as to what set this thing off, uh, you didn't immediately point to Liz Truss and her mini budget. And I kind of, it's kind of interesting where the way you've explained it, it's as if Liz Truss and the mini budget was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back instead of the root of uh, the anxieties and pressures that the UK had been facing for many years. I, I think you're you're onto something here. Uh, uh, the role of trust, the the one I, as I'm planning my lessons for my class on the role of government uh, next term, I'm planning on talking about the constraint that markets place mm. on uh, government action. And so, whether you call it the straw that broke the camel's back, or just the um, the the role of markets being taken to uh, the limit, you have a, a situation where the Quartang Trust budget was really unfounded and unconnected uh, to uh, the reality that the markets were looking for. It didn't take financial prudence and uh, responsibility seriously. 
And it didn't bother to think about how they were going to finance it. And as a result, um, it it, you know, you can't cut taxes and raise spending and expect that you'll end up okay. Uh, Truss had talked about adding a 50% increase to their defense budget. Mm. Now, that hadn't been announced. I mean, that had been announced, but it hadn't been sort of budgeted. And clearly, you can't do both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So moving on from Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang, maybe not as fast as the country moved on from them. Um, <laughs> but what what has the current Sunak government done uh, to reduce the volatility of their country's current situation? Have they done enough? And you know, what do you think the future holds for the UK? So it's important to recognize that we are uh, recording this on November 7th, because today would have been Jeremy Hunt's budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, update. And uh, he postponed it to the 17th. Mm. So when that budget comes down on the 17th, your question will be apt and we will judge. And so will the markets. But let, let me co- roll the tape back to uh, Liz Truss, because what she did in appointing Jeremy Hunt as chancellor made a lot of sense. Because he was an adult in the room. He was less ideological, more conservative and fiscally prudent than Quasi Quartang was. Uh, And as a result, I mean, Quartang and Truss had published a document uh, called Britain Unchanged, Unchained, I should say. And, um, And that was based on totally on ideology, not on policy. Jeremy Hunt is a policy wonk, and he's going to take that seriously. The other thing is that uh, Rishi Sunak was the chancellor four chancellors ago. And so you have, yeah, Yeah. I know, it's hard to believe. But the fact is that he will be a very important force. And his his challenge, and I've said this uh, publicly, is to make sure that he stays in number 10 and Mm -hmm. doesn't shift over to number 11 Downing Street. Number 11 is where the chancellor lives. Number 10 is where the prime minister lives. He has to keep his responsibilities as prime minister Mm. with a different perspective than the chancellor. And he needs to give Hunt enough room to manifest himself as a serious chancellor. But Sunak is not the chancellor, but has a significant say on how the government positions itself fiscally and financially. So, you know, in, in brief, the Sunak government has quite a lot of challenges ahead. Very, very much so uh, challenges ahead. Two points. The first on um, uh, Sunak uh, and the personality of Rishi Sunak. Um, Aside from his wealth, personal wealth, uh, wealthier than the king, aside from uh, the fact that he went to the right schools and all of that, the the nature of uh, Sunak compared to Boris or or Liz Truss um, is like uh, Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. Gordon mm-hmm. Brown was the technocrat. Blair was the retail politician. Um, as much as I uh, don't like uh, Boris Johnson, he was a good retail politician. He connected right. to the public. Right. Uh, and Rishi Sunak was his technician. He was mm-hmm. going to be the chancellor who kept 
the government on track. Mm -hmm. So that analogy, and, and frankly, we had that in Canada, the difference between uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. Paul right. Martin was uh, the technocrat uh, who became prime minister, but in fact, he was a much better finance minister than he was prime minister. Um, the challenges, uh, let me start with uh, Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, because you mentioned, we've mentioned Northern Ireland before, but uh, when Brexit took place, you can draw a border at the six counties and the Republic of Ireland, mm -hmm. or you can draw a border in the Irish Sea. Mm -hmm. But you can't not have a border if right. you're outside of the European Union. And so uh, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 took down the border between Northern Ireland and the EU mm -hmm. being in uh, Ireland, in air, in the Republic of Ireland. So you have to preserve the lack of formalities at that border. At the same time, you've got to respect the fact that you, the Europeans don't want British bangers uh, and mash going into the European Union without it being inspected. So Boris Johnson said, well, we'll have a, a quasi border. Uh, mm. That's with a Q, not a K, a, K. Uh, a quasi border down the Irish Sea. And by doing so, the Democratic Unionist Party, the uh, unionists who um, f uh, show fealty to the king, mm. uh, want to make sure that that isn't cutting them off. So national unity. And 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 uh, Nicola Sturgeon has already said that she wants to have a referendum on uh, separation for Scotland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. National unity is going to be the dominant issue for uh, Rishi Sunak. Second, the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, the pound has come back a bit since Liz Truss, but GDP is still declining. Mm. And it has uh, the highest uh, inflation or among the highest inflation in the uh, in Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's debt to GDP ratios, 96%. Mm. Uh, they've got some very serious problems. Uh, and we've had wages declining since uh, 2019 and the real wages declining. I mean, this is a serious problem. The NHS is in crisis. We have our own health problems, not as bad as the uh, National Health Service in the U UK. So all of that to say, uh, good luck, Rishi. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's really important to mention, you know, it's it, it's all fun and games when comparing the prime minister to a head of lettuce. Um, but at the end of the day that these these crises affect real people the most. Um, and I think that's that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, speaking of kind of the will of the people and, and really what the people want, um, you know, a recent YouGov poll said that 63% of Britons want the current government to call an election. Now, the Conservative Party in the polls, they have bounced back a little bit in the polls since since Sunak has, has become prime minister, um, but they are still woefully behind uh, at least the Labour Party and would most likely lose a general election uh, if it were to happen today. So you have this disconnect where the people want a general election and the ruling party has every incentive not to call an election. So my question would be, should the Conservative Party call an election for the good of the country? And, you know, what are the political costs of not calling an election? And also, 
what implications does it have for Canada? Because our political system and how we structure elections is very similar to that of the UK. So yeah, what what does that disconnect mean? Quite so. So I, when I opened, I talked about the uh, process of choosing you know, a, a leader. And it's fine when uh, the party or the parliamentary party or caucus chooses the leader when there's uh, the, the party is in opposition. So mm-hmm. Pierre Polyev uh, did not uh, have the approval of uh, just the parliamentary party or the caucus, mm-hmm. but he had approval of the, the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's in opposition. Right. If they were in government... Having the party choose that uh, leader is also choosing the prime minister. And that's what's happened with Sunak. So I I went through the numbers before where Boris Johnson had 14 million uh, people vote for him. And and Liz Truss had 140,000 out of the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom. But Rishi Sunak only had 195 MPs Mm -hmm. vote for him. It turns out that's enough, according to the constitution of the party. Uh, but it's what about all the public that he is governing? Yeah. And he's got two years before an election. Mm-hmm. Now, he could lose the confidence of the House and be forced into an election. And I think that's why Liz Trust stepped down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the party... Uh, shouldn't be in the position of unilaterally, without going to the people, choose the prime minister for any long duration. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I would be very much in favor of seeing an obligation of uh, a a required election within a fixed period of time. What's the right time? I don't know. Is it 12 months, Mm -hmm. six months, two years? I don't know. But it seems to me to be irresponsible Mm -hmm. to have the party elect the prime minister rather than the party elect just the leader. And so if they're in government, it's different than if they're in opposition. Right. I think that's a great place to kind of begin to wrap things up and just really, you know, what would be the main points that our listeners should take away from the current situation? You know, in other words, the people listening to this podcast, why is it important for them to pay at least a little bit of attention to what's happening in the UK as Canadians? And then, you know, what are the avenues through which they can further their knowledge on the subject? So um, I uh, devour uh, all the news in the uh, UK, uh, both The Guardian, which is actually free, The Telegraph, The Spectator, uh, is one of the better uh, learned uh, mm. journals on this. And The uh, the Economist is excellent. Mm. Um, there's a podcast called This Week in Westminster by the BBC, and it's a very good way to keep abreast. The issues for Canadians. So that, that was the second part of your question. The first part of your question, I think the evolution of conservatism is an interesting issue. The evolution of conservatism in the United States has been that the Democrats used to represent the working class and unions, Mm -hmm. and that that category of of voters has shifted over to the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. We've seen a little bit of that in Canada as well. We have not yet seen that in the United Kingdom. But it would be interesting to do this comparative analysis of the role of conservative parties. What does it mean to be conservative and what's the link to the working class? We've talked about the choice of leader. I think that's hugely important. Watch for the UK support 
of Ukraine. So mm-hmm. far, uh, Rishi Sunak has uh, absolutely uh, kept his commitment. But as we see the U.S. starting to uh, waver, and if we uh, look at what's happening in Germany um, and in the rest of Europe, it's up for grabs. The national unity lessons we can learn for Canadians, uh, Quebec and Alberta versus Scotland and Northern Ireland. Mm. And finally, the important thing for Canada is working with the UK. Mm. They go to us for support. We go to them for support in the UN, in NATO, in the WTO, and of course, in the Commonwealth. And as you think about the issues that we face now, climate change, Haiti, and the uh, Australian-UK-US military agreement, we, Canada, need to maintain our relations with the UK. Mm. Well, Professor Cap, this was a lovely conversation, a lovely discussion. I wish you all the best. And I hope that, at least for the British sake, uh, things uh, calm down a little bit uh, across the pond. Uh, so do I. <laughs> Once again, that was Professor Melkap who joined us for a discussion on the recent political turmoil in the UK. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Edmund Cannon from the University of Bristol and Professor Melkap from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. We thank them for coming on to the show to discuss the recent economic and political turbulence in the UK. Today's show was produced by myself, Ragni Singh Pawar, alongside my co-producers, Priti Sharma and Antoine Pouget Ramsamouche. If you liked today's episode, please consider making a donation to our host radio station, CIUT-FM. Visit beyondtheheadlines.net slash donate. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts to follow our episodes on our website at beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in the coming weeks for conversations about Canada's Arctic defense policy, microfinance, and much more. Mm-hmm.